This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Twenty-five-year-old William Miller had a wife and baby, but little else. The times were tough in Brooklyn, New York in 1899, but that was before he started the Franklin Syndicate. Miller, who was the president of a prominent local Christian Endeavor Society, had speculated with some success in the stock market. He claimed to have insider information and a deal investors couldn't refuse, a 10% return on their investment per week. His confidence and promise of quick wealth convinced three friends to give him money, jumpstarting his new investment company. Oscar Bergstrom invested in the Franklin Syndicate first with $10. Miller handed him a receipt guaranteeing against loss and promising $1 weekly dividends until the principal was withdrawn. A week later, Bergstrom invested another $10. It was a con, of course. Miller's 10% weekly return promised a 520% yearly return. Miller had no insider information and little intention of guaranteeing anything except pocketing the money. Each week, he offered new clients a choice, would take a 10% dividend or reinvest it. All Miller had to do was keep 10% of their cash to keep the con going. Investors thought the deal was so good that they told others, and Miller's scheme grew. He rented out the top floor of a house, hiring several assistants to handle the cash. While he did invest in the stock market with $1,000 once, he lost all but $5.60 and vowed to never put money in Wall Street again. By November of 1899, Miller had 12,000 investors and was raking in upwards of $63,000 a day. With such wild success, it didn't take long for newspapers to begin digging into how the Franklin Syndicate worked. Nor did it take long for a shady lawyer to see through the scheme and offer Miller his services. Attorney Robert Amon advised Miller to get back every receipt, 
they were signed confessions and promissory notes from Miller to his victims after all. They needed to be destroyed. A letter was sent to each client asking for the receipts, to compare against the certificates coming due, you understand. Miller knew that the con would soon end, and with the receipts gone, he'd get away with the cash. He couldn't complain. It had been a great scam. What he didn't know was that Amon was conning him. When the newspapers reported on the Franklin Syndicate, people who'd invested refused to believe Miller had rooked them, though some had begun to step forward and ask for their money. Instead of paying back what he could, Amon suggested Miller hide the money. Amon would even pay passage to Montreal, Canada, until the investigation blew over. Miller handed the unscrupulous lawyer every cent. When New York police arrived with an arrest warrant, Miller was gone, leaving behind his wife and baby daughter. It didn't take long before he was found and transported back to New York. And that's when he realized Amon had duped him. Miller stood trial and received a 10-year sentence. Three years later, the district attorney had enough evidence against Amon to put him away for four years. When Amon was released, he went right back to spending the money. When Miller's sentence ended, he was broke. Not long afterward, he contracted tuberculosis. While he faded from history, another con man was about to take his place. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Carlo claimed his family had been wealthy, but had fallen on hard times shortly after his birth in 1882. His mother still went by her upper-class title of Donna Imelda, a name worthy of respect in Italy. In his teen years, Carlo took a job as a postal worker, but the family insisted on a good education. They'd managed to save enough to send him to the University of Roma La Sapienza, and once he was accepted, Carlo quit his job. He made friends with other students who had a similar mindset, that college was a four-year vacation from responsibilities or family. While many of these friends had wealthy families who supported their lifestyles, Carlo did not, and quickly spent all the money he and his parents had saved. Left with no degree and no cash, his parents encouraged him to follow in the footsteps of other Italian men, go to America, work hard, and come back rich. Of course, not everyone who ventured to the United States returned wealthy, but Carlo felt certain he'd easily restore the family fortune. His parents sent him with a decent pocketful of money, but Carlo gambled away all but $2.50 by the time he arrived in Boston on November 15th of 1903. Still certain he would earn it all back, Carlo took a train to Pittsburgh to stay with a relative. Along the way, he busied himself with learning English, mostly swear words. His vocabulary and history of squandering the family's savings did little to impress his cousin Giuseppe. Still, family was family, and the grocer set the 21-year-old to work tracking shipments and doing paperwork. A year later, Carlo headed to New York to make a new life for himself. Giuseppe warned his younger cousin not to get caught up in any con games, using William Miller as an example. But the big city held promise for Carlo, and he set out to make his fortune. He'd learned more than curse words by then, and was fluent in English. He chose to Americanize his name, going by Charles instead of Carlo. 
And for the next three years, he took an assortment of jobs at pressing suits, waiting tables, selling insurance, dishwashing, and repairing sewing machines. Fed up, he took the last of his money and bought a ticket to Montreal, Canada, settling into a community with fellow immigrants. One of them told him about Luigi, or Louis, Zerassi, a highly successful Italian immigrant who had opened a bank. Charles set his sights on working for the banker. He put on a nice suit, hoping it made him look older than 25. When he reached the bank, he told the secretary that Charles Ponzi was there to speak with Mr. Zerassi. Believing that he had an appointment, the secretary led him to an office and shut the door behind him. Louis Sarasi, a stout and jolly man with a penchant for cigars, entered shortly afterward, curious to see who had so easily slipped past his secretary. Charles took to flattery before asking for a job. Louis was floored. Up until that moment, he'd believed the young man seated before him had come to invest money. At first, the banker nearly laughed and thought to usher Charles out the door. Then he thought the better of it. The bank needed another teller, and the young man had impressed him with his confidence and ability to talk his way past the staff. He offered him an assistant teller's job. Charles accepted and made himself indispensable. Seeing potential, Lewis took a risk and brought the young teller in on his investment schemes. In short, Lewis had made considerable wealth by robbing Peter to pay Paul, taking deposits to fund real estate investments. The job suited Charles. His charm and confidence brought in even more money. He even managed to integrate with the Zarasi family, flirting with Lewis's daughter. But the more he learned about his boss's business, the more worried Charles became. The bank soon failed, and Lewis fled to Mexico with most of the remaining money. Charles stayed to help the family his boss had abandoned. To keep them afloat, he forged a check but was quickly caught and sentenced to a short prison term. Upon release, he found a new hustle, smuggling immigrants across the border. Again, he was caught and sent to prison. During his second incarceration, he met Charles W. Morse, a wealthy Wall Street businessman. Before long, Charles Ponzi had learned everything he needed to set up a brand new scheme. While riding on a streetcar one day, he noticed the daughter of a local grocer. Rose Marie Ganetzo was very pretty, with dark eyes and curly dark hair, but she was also half his age. He charmed her, putting on an air of sophistication. She looked past the age gap and the two eventually wed in 1918. Rose did everything asked of her, including wearing her hair long like Lillian Gish, going against the bobbed hair trend because her husband had a crush on the film star. She never questioned their finances. Rose worked full-time and did the housework, while her husband helped run her father's grocery. After mismanaging the money and bankrupting her family's business, Charles started an advertising company with the money Rose made. When he got behind on the rent and phone bill, he applied for a loan, but the bank refused. A break came in the form of a business letter from Spain. The letter contained an international postal reply coupon. He stared at the small scrap of paper, his brain spinning. The coupon was a means for the recipient to send a letter back. The stamp was worth about a nickel in Spain, but some 10% more in the States. 
If he purchased postal coupons from economically weaker countries, he stood to make a serious return on his investment. He gave the endeavor an official-sounding name, the Securities Exchange Company. And to fund it, he recalled what he'd learned in prison and set up a stock company to raise money. Like Miller, Charles went to his friends first, promising to double their investment in three months. By 1920, he had managed to entice 18 clients to invest $100 each. The next month, he paid them from money taken in by new investors. Business boomed. He rented a larger office and hired assistants, paying them a 10% commission for every new account they brought in. In turn, they hired subagents, cutting them in 5% for each new client. By March, monthly investments increased from $5,000 to a staggering $25,000. So Charles and his agents branched out, seeking clients from all over New York, New Jersey, and the rest of New England. Word spread about the impressive gains other investors were making. To make himself look good to newcomers, Charles handed out expensive cigars and set his family up with an enviable lifestyle, all while projecting a low-key average Joe image. He frequented small cafes and claimed he never liked discussing money. But as much as he shared some of his wealth, he kept Rose in the dark about their finances. He also convinced her family to invest. Soon, Rose's siblings, aunts, and uncles handed over their money. Despite having bankrupted the grocery, if Rose trusted him this time, so did they. He moved Rose into a large home in Lexington. He hired maids, a cook, and a chauffeur to drive the couple around in the brand new car that cost him $12,000. Then he told Rose they'd soon take the honeymoon he'd promised, a trip to Italy. Instead, he used the money to bring his mother to the States to live with them. With his new wealth, Charles felt content. Even his mother was proud of him for becoming a millionaire. But her health didn't last long, and she passed away shortly after arriving. He buried his mother in style, even donating $10,000 to a children's home in his mother's name. To outsiders, Charles was not only a devoted and loving son and husband, but a trustworthy member of the community, a real stand-up guy. Throughout the summer of 1920, he continued to rake in the money. Even though he knew it was a house of cards, he figured that as long as he could keep bringing in new clients, the scheme and his lifestyle could go on forever. People adored Charles. He used his charm and wit with everyone he met. His clients seemed to be earning huge amounts of money. Everyone believed he was a financial prodigy. All but one. William Miller, having just been released from prison, commented to a reporter that though he may be dense, he couldn't understand how Charles Ponzi had made so much money in such a short period of time. Within days, the cracks began to show in Charles' scheme. The Boston Post's headline on July 24th of 1920 read, Doubles the money within three months, 50% interest paid in 45 days. The article concluded that for the business to be legitimate, 160 million coupons would have to be in circulation. That was a problem, since only 27,000 existed. Two days later, Charles arrived at his office to discover a long line of clients standing four deep. They had come to collect. Fortunately for him, many others still wanted in on the deal. Days later, post office officials told the public that the coupon scenario was impossible. 
Charles feared the worst, but his luck held once more. The official's insistence that he was conning the public only served to bolster his scheme. To help mitigate the newspapers and government's warnings, Charles hired a publicity agent. William McMasters instantly opened the company's books to the district attorney's office. As a show of cooperation and a way to calm his investigators, Charles declined new clients and claimed he had nothing to hide. DA investigator Edwin Pride began the laborious task of sifting through the records. With word that the Securities Exchange Company was no longer taking clients, investors panicked. They made a run on his office, demanding their money. Ever the charmer, Charles told his staff to refund every client who had a voucher. He even ordered coffee and sandwiches for those standing in line. Many of those in line thought Charles wouldn't be so ready to refund the money or supply food and drink if the rumors were true. Many left, deciding to keep their investments with him. At the end of the day, he'd paid out a million dollars. While that's a lot of cash, he'd managed to only give back their initial principal, which saved him considerable money. His nonchalance toward the DA's office delighted the papers, which always had a headline. Charles pointed out to reporters that he was under no obligation to reveal his business details. He even joked that the idea of cashing coupons was his idea alone, and if the government wanted to know how he'd done it, they'd have to figure it out for themselves. Postage stamp king defies federal government to learn how he profits, read the Washington Post on July 30th. Finally, the post office partnered with McMasters, who turned on his former boss. He announced that Charles was $2 million in debt if he didn't pay interest on the notes, and $4.5 million in debt with interest. Another client run on the office set Charles back once more. Furious, he threatened to sue the post office and McMaster's. In an attempt to calm investors, he gave a luncheon and speech at Boston's Hotel Bellevue. He told the audience that to secure the coupons needed, he had worked with foreign governments. Once again, Charles seemed to come out on top. Then, just days later, the Boston Post revealed his past prison sentences, including the one for the forged check and his involvement with Louis Zarassi's failed bank and real estate scheme. Soon afterward, another article for his prison sentence on immigration fraud surfaced. Knowing an arrest was soon coming, Charles turned himself in. This time, the newspaper headline read, Ponzi wearing his smile, even in East Cambridge jail. Although he remained smug, Charles knew it was over. His house of cards had finally fallen down. Charles Ponzi's success was credited in part to how he instilled a sense of trust in his victims. He made lies sound like the truth. Sure, part of the lore was the promise of easy wealth, but Charles knew how to connect with his intended targets. The con wasn't original. William Miller had preceded him. Charles wouldn't be the last to work such a con either. But we associate this type of money scam with him. A Ponzi scheme is the act of using new investors to pay off prior ones. As long as there are new investors coming in and few cashing out, the scheme keeps going. The lore of easy money with little risk, coupled with cognitive bias and a dose of denial, had Charles' investors refusing to believe they'd been taken until well after his arrest. 
His downfall was sending letters to clients telling them that their notes had matured. Arrested on federal charges of larceny and mail fraud, he pled guilty. The attorney general promised that if Charles Ponzi was released on bail, he'd have him arrested for additional charges and set an even higher bail. The financial loss to investors and banks was astounding. Investors received 30 cents on the dollar for their investments. Collectively, they lost $20 million, which is about $200 million today. Three years after his sentencing, Charles walked out of prison a free man, but not for long. The state had him arrested on larceny charges. Feeling swindled, Charles sued the state, claiming he'd been led to believe that the state would drop its charges if he agreed to the federal charges. He also claimed that if he were charged for the same crimes twice, albeit in federal and state courts, it was double jeopardy. While waiting for the Supreme Court to hear the case, Charles set up another scheme, selling swampland in Florida under an alias. The scam was short-lived, and he was arrested for fraud once more. He jumped bail and fled, only to be captured in New Orleans and taken to Massachusetts to stand trial and eventually serve seven more years. By the time he was released in 1934, his charm and charisma had long faded. An angry crowd met him, demanding further justice. On October 7th, Charles Ponzi was deported to Italy. Rose, who'd stood by him all this time, filed for divorce. Her own family had been swindled to the tune of $16,000, and she'd finally had enough. Charles didn't change his ways. He went from one con to another in Italy. When none of them panned out, he took a job in Brazil as a translator for an Italian airline. During World War II, the airline shut down, leaving him unemployed. His health began to suffer. His eyesight failed, leaving him nearly blind by 1948. An American reporter requested what would be Charles Ponzi's last interview. The reporter asked if he was ever remorseful about the con. Charles answered, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. He bragged that it was worth the $15 million he'd swindled just to watch him pull off what he called the greatest show ever staged. On January 18th of 1949, the man who had taken people's life savings died in poverty and alone at a charity hospital in Brazil. The hospital took his last $75 to cover his burial expenses. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first like worthington and liz claiborne for her each in women's petite and plus sizes and stafford and mutual weave for him style and comfort for all even big and tall plus even more for the whole family like levi's and exertion here spring comes in all shapes sizes and colors jc penny make everybody count 
With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's not much in the historical records about Sarah Howe's early life, but some evidence suggests that in the early 1870s, she worked as a fortune teller. The 1870s was a time of growth and uncertainty. The Reconstruction era blended with technological innovation and the Gilded Age. For some, life was good, but for Sarah and many others, making a living meant getting creative. Aside from her fortune-telling business, she opened a bank run entirely by women for women. It was an outrageous thing to do. Even today, we're only decades out from women being able to open a charge account without their father's or husband's permission. In the 1800s and beyond, the inability to vote, uh, earn equal wages, or have credit or a bank account was a driving force for women to get married. Sarah, knowing this, founded the Ladies' Deposit Company. The bank's mission was simple, help women gain access to the world of banking. They only accepted deposits from unprotected women, those without a husband or father acting as a guardian over their money. It was a niche business, but a needed one, as larger banks refused to allow them to open accounts. Sarah also promised her clients an 8% interest rate. For every $100 deposited, she guaranteed an additional $96 in one year. New clients received their first three months' interest in advance. While it might be easy for us to see the red flags, you have to keep in mind that these women didn't have many options. What the ladies' deposit company offered was a path to independence. Naturally, skeptics brought up their concerns and doubts. Sarah calmed them by explaining the bank was more of a charity for women, bankrolled by the Quakers. Word spread quickly, and women of all walks of life became members. Letters poured in from all over the country, even though Sarah never took out an ad. Every client came from word of mouth. She opened a bank in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and made plans to open more branches in Philadelphia and New York. Some invested a little, others invested their life savings. All told, 800 women invested a total of around $500,000. Many men of the time were annoyed with Sarah's bank encroaching on their control over the women and finances in their lives. Others were intrigued by the idea of women managing their own money. The business thrived, and Sarah no longer had to tell fortunes for a living. Reporters began to investigate her, but every time one stepped inside her bank, she promptly had them ushered out, seeing as all the reporters of the time were men. In 1880, the Boston Daily Advertiser ran the first of a series of articles exposing Sarah as a fraud, claiming that the interest rate was too good to be true. The reports caused a run on the bank. If the story and con sound familiar, they are. Sarah Howe ran a Ponzi scheme long before William Miller or Charles Ponzi. And just like the others, the con came to an end, leaving investors penniless. Two and a half weeks after the newspaper stories, Sarah was arrested. 
Either because of her crimes or because she'd refused them entry to the bank, reporters were particularly vicious in their writing about her. Yet nicer, though clearly patronizing, to the victims. The women were repeatedly shamed for trusting another woman with their money. While she had scammed her clients, Sarah remained unrepentant about creating a bank for women. The Boston Herald promptly ran an article attributing Sarah's evil doings to her being born out of wedlock and being divorced. They called her ugly and ignorant as a way to explain her cruelty in taking other women's money. Sarah stood trial in Boston and was found guilty. But not because she'd defrauded those who'd trusted her. No, she was found guilty of soliciting money under pretenses, claiming that the bank had been funded by Quakers. She spent three years in prison. Instead of learning her lesson and walking the straight and narrow, Sarah returned to her old ways, opening another women's bank in Boston, where she offered investors 7% interest. The con ran from 1884 until 1886, earning Sarah $50,000. She was caught once more, but not sentenced. Instead of trying a third time, she returned to her prior career of telling fortunes for 25 cents, having spent every penny she'd swindled. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious hand washing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.